everything in our text this morning comes in answer to or in response to the interaction that Christ had just had with the rich young man in the previous section. There, in Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 to, uh, or 16 to 22, we read about a young man, a rich young man, Luke calls him a ruler, who hurried up to Jesus and kneeling down before him, asked him, Teacher, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life or to have eternal life? The young man approached Jesus with respect. He approached Jesus with esteem, addressing him with a title that indicates as much. And the question that he posed to Jesus is rather interesting, considering that this man had claimed to live a decent, moral, and upstanding life. By his own admission, if you read that section of text, you'll see that he has kept himself from committing any of the big sins. He hasn't murdered anyone. He hasn't committed adultery. He hasn't stolen. He hasn't borne any false witness against another person in a court of law. And on top of that, he also insisted that he'd honored his father and mother and that he'd loved his neighbor as himself. This is the type of man that any of us, if we met him on the street, if he came into the church, we'd say, this is a good man. This is the type who, if they hadn't made a profession of faith, we'd probably be pressuring him into saying the sinner's prayer. But as we realize, or as we read throughout the interaction, we come to see that he isn't really willing to become a disciple of Christ when the rubber hits the road. And here, even as he asserts and professes his virtuous law-abiding morality, he senses that there's something missing. He's experiencing a pull, a tug, this nagging feeling that all of his supposed goodness just doesn't measure up. There's something missing and he can't put his finger on it. And so he asked Jesus, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? What good thing must I do so that I can live forever? You see, the young man here hopes that Jesus will reveal to him some act of kindness, some good deed, some donation he could make, some practice he hasn't yet adopted, performed, or carried out. Perhaps Jesus could bring to his attention some law that he's overlooked. You see, this man is searching for a one-sized-fits-all act of obedience that he can add to his already impressive moral resume, his already pretty good religious repertoire, so that he can clinch for himself eternal life. And Jesus responds in verse 17 of chapter 19, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. So you see, while this young man approaches Jesus, focused as he is on obtaining the favor of God by his good works, asking him what is good, Jesus responds by pointing him to who is good. It's not about the what, it's about the who. And in so doing, he revealed to this young man something that every single one of us all over the world must know. No one, not anyone, aside from the Lord himself is, nor can anyone ever be, good enough to inherit eternal life on their own. Every single one of us falls short of God's perfect, God's standard, which as Jesus has already made clear in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, is absolute, total, utter perfection. Jesus said it, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. There is only one who is good. There is only one who is perfect, and that's God alone. 
And the New Testament repeats this fact over and over again, that no one can be saved by being good and following the law of God because we all fall short of that law. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatians, for example, in chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, all who rely on the works of the law, meaning all who have as their foundation for their standing before God, at it, uh, at the law, are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident, Paul said, that no one is justified, and that word justified means declared righteous by God. No one is declared righteous by God, before God, by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. And again, in his letter to the Roman believers, Paul said, by works of the law, no human being will be justified. Again, meaning declared righteous by God. No human being will be justified in God's sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In fact, as Paul continued in Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, declared righteous by God, by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, the law, the commands of God, cannot secure for any one of us salvation and eternal life. Being good cannot secure for any one of us salvation and eternal life. But what the law of God can do, what the law of God can do very well, is reveal to us our depravity and our sinfulness, but it is powerless to actually solve this, our greatest problem. The law is powerless to solve our guilt before the Lord. The law is powerless to fix our inability to obey the totality of that perfect law. And know this, no matter who you are, no matter how great you are in this world, or on the flip side, no matter how impoverished you are in this world, or low your estate is in this world, all of us, every single one of us, is saved in the same way, by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. All of us, no matter how great we think we are, are helpless and incapable of digging ourselves out from the gulf that we have created by our sin. And so our generous, good, holy, perfect, and gracious God took it upon Himself to save by sending His one and only Son so that whoever believes, and to believe, one must humble themselves and turn to Him fully. Whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For this rich young man, Jesus revealed to him the state of his heart. Jesus revealed to this young man that he was unwilling, this man was unwilling to give himself fully and wholly and totally and unreservedly to the Lord because his earthly treasures had captured his heart and enslaved his heart. And so when it all came down to it, this young man ended up walking away from Jesus, the one who gives eternal life to everyone who comes to him truly. This young man came asking, what must I do to gain eternal life? He wanted eternal life but then walked away from the only one who could give it to him what he seemed so desperate to attain. And as the young man walked off, Jesus turned to his disciples, the twelve standing in front of him, 
and said to them in 19 verse 23, Truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And a rich person here meaning one with great earthly and material wealth. There's no wiggling out from under this. It is difficult because as we see in the case of this rich young man, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches had choked it out of his heart the call of Christ in that moment to him. It's difficult because as the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, the young pastor in Ephesus, that he wrote, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And listen, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's one of the most misquoted texts in all of Scripture. It doesn't say money is the root of all evil. It's not what it says, because that's not true. It isn't. It's the love of money that is a root of all kinds of evil. You see the difference? The misquote is love, love of, or money is the root of all evil. The biblical text says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving, the love of money, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So listen, if you are rich in here this morning, if you possess an abundance of the world's goods, Jesus is speaking to you. I know we don't like that. I know we don't like Jesus actually saying stuff about our money and our finances and what we own and our possessions. We wish Jesus would just kind of leave that section of our lives alone. But he's speaking to you. He's also speaking to you if you are, don't consider yourself to be rich. because that doesn't, Just because you don't consider yourself to be rich doesn't mean you're not included in the warning. If you desire to be rich, you're included in this warning. Hear what Jesus declares this morning. That it is difficult for the rich and for those who desire to be rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's just what the text says, right? And for this reason, you and I must always be checking the state of our hearts with reference to our earthly possessions, asking ourselves, do they own you or do I own them? Do they possess me or do I possess them? And Jesus actually amplifies the statement when he repeats it in verse 24. He amplifies the difficulty of the rich entering the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse 24. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I have split a number of my pairs of my pants. Over the years, I, when I was a junior high pastor, I remember trying to be very energetic with the students and trying to say to them, you know, the world is all lights and cameras and action and they're, they're, very, abund they're very excited. And I did some sort of weird, like, you know, thing. And I heard it. <laughs> Pants just ripped. And I hoped none of the kids saw. I hoped I could just keep going. This was here, actually. And the kid in the front row just, just nonchalantly said, 
You ripped your pants. <laughs> and I don't know if you saw, but I dropped a couple of things here when I was leading or when I was trying to play guitar. And I bent down to pick them up and I thought I had ripped them again. <laughs> I was sitting here the whole time like, uh-oh. But after ripping the pants, I tried sewing those pants. And I find it impossible, almost impossible, to fit basic sewing needle thread through the eye of a needle that it's actually created to go through. I have a hard time just doing that. Now imagine a camel. Jesus illustrated the point by giving an impossible scenario. Camel, needle. They don't go through. The camel cannot go through. Camels simply do not fit through the eye of a needle. They are massive, and the eye of a needle is tiny. Without the Lord's intervention, it is impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Without the Lord's intervention, it is impossible for anyone to enter the kingdom of God. But Jesus is uniquely and specifically talking to the rich here because riches are, not all the time, but far too often, actually hindrances to discipleship. In that they lodge themselves into our hearts and become the objects in which we trust. Often, we trust in our riches over and above the trust we place in the Lord Himself. And if you don't have a ton of money, if that's you today, if you're kind of one who lives paycheck to paycheck and doesn't know how you're going to put food on your table next, I want you to think about how deceptive the desires for money can be. Have you ever thought to yourself, subtly or overtly, if I only had more money, everything would be all right? Now, I want you to think about that statement. If I only had more money, everything would be okay. What does that statement say about where your trust is placed? Uh, that statement reveals where and in what we have put our trust. In earthly riches, do you hope for more of the world's riches more than you hope for more of Jesus? Do you hope for more of, or do you seek after the riches of the world with more devotion and dedication than you seek Christ? Christ made it clear, right? The thing we are to seek first is what? His kingdom and His righteousness, and then all of the necessities of life will be added unto us. He promised that in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not buy into the lies of your flesh. It is not more money that you and I currently need. It is not more of the world's goods. Trust me, if you go and you ask people who have tons and tons of money, I bet you they'll tell you, we're not any happier now with money than we were without. It's not gaining more of what currently doesn't make us happy that will make us happy. But it's abiding in Christ. It's connection to the vine that is Christ. It is closer relationship with Christ that we require. That's what we need. And when we have Him, we can know and we can trust that ultimately speaking, everything is going to be okay. Your money can leave you. You can lose it all. A bad venture, moth, thief, rust, as Jesus said, might destroy it all. 
But the disciples aren't quite there yet. When they heard the words of Jesus that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God, look what they said in 19 verse 25. They were greatly astonished and said, Who then can be saved? This is something Jesus does to the disciples quite often. He challenges their worldview to such a degree that they are astonished by it. You remember when Jesus told the twelve that he had to go to Jerusalem where he would suffer at the hands of the religious leaders, be killed, and on the third day rise again. And Peter immediately pulled Jesus to the side and began rebuking Jesus, saying, this will never happen to you. And then Jesus looked at Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. When Jesus spoke about the permanence of the marriage bond, that what God has joined together, man must not separate The disciples again were amazed and said in chapter 19, verse 10, if such is the case between a man and his wife, it's better not to marry at all. And now again, Jesus is telling the disciples that it is impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And it brings them to a state of absolute astonishment. They were utterly amazed. The word means they were rocked to the core by what Jesus had just told them. And why is that? Because once again, Jesus revealed to them a truth that ran absolutely contrary to everything their society, their culture, and their religion had taught them. Jews in this day assumed that they were rich, the rich were rich because they were favored by God. Because they were in tight with the Lord. Because the Lord thought they were better than everyone else. Even today, a large branch of so-called Christians And pseudo-churches attempt to push this idea. The pull of riches and the human desire to accumulate them in a greedy way has not subsided and has not abated. You see, the disciples, as they watched this rich young ruler come, they would have had no doubt in their minds, there would have been no doubt that he was favored by God. Because he was externally obedient, he was moral, and he was rich. But as he walked away from Jesus, he revealed that his heart had been hardened by the very riches everyone around him saw as a blessing and so proved to be for him a curse. And so now the disciples wonder, well, if, if the ones we thought were favored by God are not actually saved but are instead far worse off, what hope does that leave for the rest of us? If they aren't saved... Even worse, if it's impossible for them to be saved, then who can be saved? Who can be delivered? Who can be rescued from the coming judgment? And Jesus knows what's going on in their minds. He understands the turmoil. He knows their heart. And so in verse 26, he replied saying, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. With man, the salvation of the rich cannot come to pass. Left to him, themselves, left to ourselves, none of us, not just the rich, none of us would turn to Jesus. It's an impossibility. But God, two of the greatest words in Scripture, but God. He can fit camels through the eye of a needle. God can save the rich, as he often did throughout Scripture. Just look at men like Abraham and Job and Solomon and Zacchaeus. 
If you are saved here this morning, rich or poor, it's all because of God's grace that has been showered upon you. It's not because of anything you did. It's not because you're better than anyone else or more worthy than anyone else or smarter than anyone else. It's because the God who accomplishes the impossible accomplished the impossible for you. He sent His Son to save you. He called you to Himself and gave you the right by grace through faith in His Son to be one of His children. Now consider for yourself, which type of rich do you resemble? Do you resemble the Abraham, Job's, David's, Solomon's, and Zacchaeus types? Or do you resemble the rich young ruler? Are you one enslaved to and possessed by your, what you own? Or one who loves the Lord above all, even if it means laying it all down? The rich young ruler chose to keep it and walk away. And Peter, taking all of this in, seeing all of this happen, asks a question in verse 27. We have left everything and followed you. So what then will we have? See, Peter, watching the rich man walk away and noting that he, along with a few of the other disciples, had actually given up and sacrificed quite a bit to come and serve and follow Jesus. They had walked away from their livelihoods and they heard Jesus tell them that it's impossible for the rich to inherit the kingdom. Wonders what that means for them who have given everything up to follow Jesus. What does it mean for us? The young ruler gained nothing because he refused to give anything up to serve Jesus, whereas 11 of the 12 disciples had given up homes and given up businesses, given up family, given up financial security to follow Jesus. As we will see later in the Gospel of Matthew, Judas stuck around for the money bag and so was in an even worse situation than the young ruler. But think about a man like Matthew. Matthew's in the same boat as Zacchaeus, a tax collector raking in mucho dinero. And he left the tax booth behind to serve Jesus, to follow Jesus. He left it all behind. And so everything that follows from here to the end of 20 verse six, chapter 20, verse 16, is Jesus' answer to this question. What then? We have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And in response to the question, Jesus will give three answers. He will speak first to the honors that are specific to the disciples. Second, he will speak to the promise, the great blessing and reward that will come to all who follow Jesus as, a, as disciples. And third, he will warn us not to think more highly of ourselves and our contributions than we ought. Those are the three, answers, three levels of answers that Jesus gives. So first, in verse 28, Jesus revealed the unique honors that he will bestow upon the apostles. He said to them in verse 28, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the tribes of Israel. So depending on your translation, you will see this new world translated as regeneration, in the regeneration, or you might have the renewal. 
It refers to the time of rebirth upon the earth when the Son of Man returns and sits on His glorious throne and rules and reigns from Jerusalem over His millennial kingdom. This is the time that is spoken of by Daniel in chapter 7, verse 13 and 14 of his prophecy, where we read this, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed." And again, in Psalm 2, which is a tremendous comfort to me, it's one of my favorite texts in all of Scripture, it is a source of hope and comfort for me as I look out into this crazy world that we live in. Knowing what Psalm 2 prophesies, knowing that Christ will one day rule over the very nations that at this moment despise Him so deeply, at this moment brings me peace. As we read in Psalm 2, while the nations might rage, the nations might conspire to cast away the Lord from them, the Lord has decreed that he will set his king on in Zion, on the Lord's holy hill, and will, according to Psalm chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, make the nations his heritage and the ends of the earth his possession. He shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Amen. When the Lord Jesus ascends to his throne in Jerusalem to rule and to reign over the earth, he will crush any and all rebellion and resistance. At Christ's second coming, there will, the earth will experience a sort of renewal, a sort of rebirth under his sovereign rule and dominion. All rebels, as all rebels are subdued and as Christ reigns over the earth, it is during this time when peace and righteousness will abound, when the curse that is upon the ground will be limited and the ground shall produce abundantly. It is at this time where we read in Isaiah that the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. It's not the lion shall lay down with the lamb. I know we all think that's what it is. But it's the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf with the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. That this time when the Son of Man seated on his glorious throne, when the disciples, meaning you who have followed me, this is who he's speaking of in verse 28 of our text, truly I say to you that you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones. It is to them that he is speaking. You who have followed me, meaning truly followed, indicates that Judas will be excluded and he will be replaced in Acts chapter 1. You see, this is a literal promise from Jesus to the twelve. Understood by the disciples as much. Jesus here makes a distinction between the disciples' reward of judging Israel proper and the reward of all disciples through the ages who have sacrificed to follow Jesus. So while these apostles will be given a unique reward or unique blessing of sitting on twelve thrones to judge the nation of Israel during the millennial reign of Christ... There is a second component that Jesus gives in answer to Peter's question, where he speaks to the blessings that all Christians will inherit for their service to Christ in verse 29. Look at verse 29. Here he declares that everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Everyone. Every single disciple of Christ 
who for the sake of Christ has made sacrifices in this life will receive blessings that more than compensate for, that more than make up for everything that we have left behind to serve Him. If for the sake of Jesus your family disowns you, if you lose your job for the sake of Christ, if you lose your property or you lose your earthly possessions, any of it, Jesus here promises... He guarantees that the treasures in heaven will be so much greater than anything we lost in the here and now. You will be given the great reward for your toil and sacrifice, which is eternal life. But curiously, you notice how Jesus ends this discussion here, or he concludes these two promises with this phrase, but many who are first will be last. And then he'll tell them a parable, and that parable will conclude once again with that statement in verse 20, verse 16. So the last will be first, and the first last. Jesus is still answering the disciples' question as he tells them this parable. He is still responding to Peter's question. We have left everything to follow you. What then will we have? See, Jesus here likens the disciples to those laborers who begin working in the vineyard early in the morning. These are like the ones who bore the burden of the day and endured the scorching heat. And in telling this parable, Jesus sought to stifle the pride of the twelve. And this forms the third component of his answer. As the disciples think to themselves, Jesus, we watched the rich young man walk away, but look at us. Look at all we've done for you. Look at all we've given up for you. Look at all we've sacrificed to follow you. Now, like we said, it's true the disciples will be given some rather spectacular privileges in the millennial kingdom, but their ultimate reward, their supreme blessing, that of salvation and eternal life, is going to be the same blessing that we all receive. Because salvation and eternal life are free gifts of God given to His children according to His sovereign and gracious generosity. Whether you're a tax collector or a prodigal, a king or a potentate, or a magistrate, whether you turn to Christ as a teenager and serve Him faithfully for decades, or you repent on your deathbed moments before you draw your last breath after living a life of total debauchery, whether your life is one of toil and sacrifice and hardship for the sake of Jesus like the Apostle Paul, or one of great comfort and material blessing like so many of God's people throughout history, every one of them, when they, if they enter the vineyard, meaning if they turn to Jesus in faith and repentance, every one of them, in the end, are given the same denarius. The same great blessing. And each of us ought to be thankful for receiving it. Whatever your life or situation looks like, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, if you truly turn to Jesus, listen to this. This is the great, one of the great promises of scripture one of the great blessings of scripture you saint sitting here this morning right now you will receive the same ultimate blessing as peter james john the apostle paul you will receive the same ultimate blessing as the great preachers and the great leaders throughout the history of the church we are all going to receive the abundantly generous gift of eternal life. 
And had it not been for the landowner in the parable taking the initiative, going out and searching for and calling workers into the fields, guess what? All of them would have remained idle at the city gates. If it hadn't been for the Lord going out and calling you, you would have remained idle at the city gates. And see that the landowner sets the terms. And if the workers are going to come into the field, they have to accept the terms of the landowner and go out into the vineyard. And so in telling this parable, Jesus in essence tells to Peter, be careful, Peter. Don't get too wrapped up in what you think you ought to receive for your labors. Don't get too caught up in comparing your labors and your sacrifices to others that you don't think have labored and sacrificed as much as you. Don't get jealous of those who receive rewards even though they have not been in the vineyard as long as you have. Or they haven't endured the scorching heat in the same way that you have. Because when it's all said and done, Peter, when the judgment day arrives, it can be compared to a vineyard owner who so generously distributed the same wages to the workers who entered the fields at the 11th hour that he did to those who started early in the day. And this because the Lord does not compare us against each other. That's something we do. That's one of our many, many, many human shortcomings. And we look at other people and we say, well, I've done more than them, or they've done more than me. I'm more deserving than them, or they're more deserving than me. But God doesn't operate like that. God generously dispenses His gifts and blessings as He so wills and desires. And so again, regardless of who you are, regardless of what you've done, regardless of how your life has turned out, if you are a child of God by grace through faith, then you have been given more than you deserve whether you're an 11th hour worker or a 6 a.m. worker. Serving Christ and sacrificing for His name's sake will issue in, will result in the greatest of all blessings, eternal life with Him. And we should be thanking God every single day as people of gratitude for His generosity and His grace. And so Jesus warned the disciples, and by extension He warns us, not to get caught, too caught up in thinking that highly of our contributions. Not to get too caught up in thinking, look at everything I've done. And then think about what we ought to receive over against or in contrast to those who haven't, by our account, done as much as we have. See, it's easy for us, right, to think about everything we've done, all we've contributed, our years of volunteering, how much we've given, and then look around at everyone else and think, they haven't done as much as me. They haven't given as much as me. They haven't worked as much as me. And then we can grow bitter as a result. This is exactly the type of thinking Jesus is warning about here. And as Peter considered his response to Jesus, as he considered all the people who sacrificed nothing to follow Jesus, as he considered the rich young ruler who had just walked away, he began to connect his work and his sacrifice to his own preeminence in the kingdom. Look at all I've given up. Look at all I've done. The wicked sin of pride started sprouting its roots in Peter's heart. And now he was in danger of repeating the errors of the Pharisees who they themselves judged, them, they judged themselves as better and more worthy than everyone around them because they did more, 
because they gave more, because they sacrificed more, because they were more meticulous and scrupulous about their earthly obedience to the law. And so they believed they were more worthy of God's affection and blessing than everyone around them. They believed that everybody should defer to them and admire them and thank them and show them gratitude. The problem with such a game, however, is that there will always be those who outdo us in, our, in their sacrifices for the kingdom, who can look down on us, right? Uh, there's one example that always puts me in my place. When I was starting my degree at the Master's Seminary, we had a time where we went around the room and we spoke about uh, who we are and what, our minis- what ministries we were, God had called us to. And as we were introducing ourselves, one young man shared with us his most spectacular story. And as he talked, you could see all of us who thought pretty high of ourselves just kind of doing this. At a young age, this guy wanted to serve the Lord on the mission field. He wanted to be the beautiful feet that bring the good news to the unreached peoples of the world. But he had no idea how to do it. He had no idea where he should go. Should he go to a mission organization or not? And so he just left it all in the hands of the Lord. And one day, out of nowhere, he simply packed a bag, went to the airport closest to his house, went to the desk, and said, I want to buy a ticket for the next plane departing. He had no idea where he was going to go. The plane happened to be going to South Africa. So he bought that ticket, flew to South Africa, then got off the plane, had no idea where he was going to go. So he said, I'm just going to walk. And he walked, and he walked, and he walked, and he walked for days and days and days until he came to a forest. Now, if I'm in Africa and I come to a forest, I'm like, I'm going to turn this way and not go into the forest. But he didn't. He kept walking into the forest. And he walked and he walked for days until he reached a tribe deep in the forests. Didn't know the tribe, didn't know the language, didn't know anything about them. But he built a hut, spent time learning the language. He was attacked by crocodiles. He was attacked by other animals as he learned to navigate the tricky terrain that is the forests of South Africa. And after a while, he learned the language of the people and proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people and those people came to the knowledge of Christ. And as he came back to do his degree, we were doing the Doctor of Ministry degree at the Master's Seminary, at the very same time, he was working on a second doctorate, and finishing a published book. And you could see, there's 50 other pastors sitting in this room with this guy, and all of us are like, I don't want to introduce myself. (laughs) None of us. Will this most excellent fellow, will his ultimate blessing and reward be greater than yours or mine? If we went by human standards, 
all of us would just have heavy shoulders like, I could never measure up to that. And if he was a proud man, which he isn't, he could easily say, what is wrong with all of you? We could get caught up in this game if we want. And Jesus here said, no, his, his ultimate reward, his ultimate blessing of eternal life will not be less spectacular than yours. And why is that? Because here's something we need to realize. Everything that you and I contribute in the vineyard of the Lord was given to us by the Lord in the first place. You and I are like children who go out to buy parents' birthday presents with their own money. Can you imagine looking down on your sibling who went out and bought a lesser present in your eyes with your parents' money than you did with your parents' money? It's utter foolishness, right? The workers in the field overlooked this fact and thought to themselves, hey, I worked more, so I deserve more. I ought to be given something extra. And so instead of gratefully receiving the agreed-upon wage, which was itself quite generous, all of a sudden, for the first workers, when they see the late-coming workers getting their denarius, for the first workers, it's not enough. I've done more, I should get more. They couldn't bear the idea that these other workers who had not worked as hard as they had would be considered equal to them. As we read in the parable in verse 1, for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. So the parable here presents service to the Lord as laboring in the vineyard. And he, the master of the house, the Lord, went out early in the morning at the dawning of the day, around 6 a.m., to hire laborers for his vineyard. And verse 2, after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. He set the, the terms they agreed, they went out and worked. The cost, they, saw, they thought the cost was appropriate. So he sent them, meaning he dispatched them in the field. And they worked in the field from 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. They tended the landowner, landowner's vineyard until help, until extra hands arrived to assist, as we read in verse 3 to 4. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. So you see, at 9 a.m., the owner of the vineyard saw some day laborers that hadn't found work that day standing idle, meaning doing nothing in the marketplace. And so he called them to go work in the fields too. And notice, because it was a little later in the day, the workers didn't negotiate any sort of wage with the landowner. He simply said to them, whatever is right, I will give to you. You see that? Whatever is right, I will give to you. See, the workers trust the owner to pay what is right. And most likely, they thought to themselves, on the way to the field, well, it's a little later in the day, so it's probably going to be less than the denarius that's paid to a day laborer, but they still went out into the field, and they worked alongside the 6 a.m. crew. And the owner of the field kept going out over and over again throughout the day to call workers. As we read in verse 5, he went out at the 6th hour and the ninth hour. At noon, that's the 6th hour, and again at three, that's the ninth hour, he went out. And these groups also went into the field and worked alongside the 6 a.m. and the 9 a.m. crews. And then surprisingly, the owner went out again at about the 11th hour, meaning at 5 p.m., an hour before the day of work concludes. Concludes. Verse 6 and 7 we read, He went out and found others standing at the 11th hour. 
And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. So you see it. These men stood there idle all day long. They stood in the marketplace, twiddling their thumbs, arms crossed, whatever, however they wanted to stand in their lazy way, while the, some of the laborers in the vineyard had toiled and sweat since 6 a.m. Who knows why these men hadn't been hired? Perhaps they weren't the greatest workers. Perhaps they couldn't lift as much. Every time I read a, a, um, a job description or a job posting, because you know at the patio place we're always looking for general laborers in the warehouse, it's always, you've got to be able to live 50 pounds. Perhaps these guys couldn't live 50 pounds. Who knows? Maybe they were weaker. Whatever it was, no one had hired them, so they simply stood around doing nothing all day long. And even so, the landowner comes to them and directs them to go into the vineyard also. And so these guys go into the field, they work for an hour. Now, generally speaking, if you... If you work a job, you get paid a salary or a wage that is dependent upon the hours that you work, right? And so all of these workers assumed that their wages would match the time put in. And if the 6 a.m. workers had been promised a denarius as agreed upon, then the reasonable expectation would be that the workers who entered the field later would be paid less or receive some lesser percentage according to their time in the field. So, verse 8, When the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, the foreman is representative of Christ, call the laborers and pay them their wages beginning with the last up to the first. See, in Israel, wages were to be paid daily. Deuteronomy 24, 15 makes it clear, you shall give the hired worker who is poor and needy his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against the Lord, cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. So here, the day of paying wages is symbolic of the consummation of all things. The great day of judgment. On this day, when the wages are to be paid, where the workers are to be compensated and blessed and given their inheritance, the foreman of the vineyard, the Lord Jesus Christ, distributes the wages. And he did so beginning with the last up to the first. It's as if the owner of the field wants everybody to see what he's about to do. Each of the groups will receive more than they deserve. He will not give to anyone less than he promised, but what we will see here is that some will receive more than they could have ever expected. Not a single one of these laborers, again, deserved to be hired at all, so every one of them is being given a grace. The owner could have left them all standing idle at the marketplace, but he didn't. He kept going out over and over again at all points of the day, to call workers into the field. And now, verse 9, when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, how does that strike you? What's your initial response? Is it, he's so generous! Or is it, that's unfair? The point here is that the generosity of the owner is put on display. The 11th hour workers put in one hour and they got paid a full day's wage. Now how are the other workers going to respond? Will they celebrate along with the 11th hour workers the generosity of their master? Will they praise and admire the landowner who gives such an undeserved blessing? Because in the end, what should it matter to the 6 a.m. crew that the 5 p.m. workers received a denarius so long as the 6 a.m. crew get what they agreed upon? 
But the 6 a.m. workers, when they came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them received a denarius. They supposed they would receive more. They compared their own labors to the latecomers and thought themselves more deserving, more entitled to greater pay. But no, they got a denarius as well. And so they grew jealous and envious and they felt entitled. They had received what had been promised. There is no legitimate gripe here. It is of no concern to the all-day laborers what anyone else has paid so long as the owner gives what he promised. But upon seeing the others who worked less receive the same wage, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only an hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. You see that? They grumbled, they complained in their sense of entitlement. They believed they deserved more than they were given because they compared their labors with the labors of the others in the vineyard. You have made them equal to us, they say. You've put them on the same level as us. Look how kindly you've treated them. But what about us who've done more? Again, instead of thanksgiving, instead of celebrating, we have in its place murmuring and grumbling something that we ourselves do quite often. When we don't feel that our vineyard labors are adequately rewarded or admired or that we've been blessed or that when somebody else gets something that we think we deserve, something that the Lord has not deemed it right to give to us, but somebody else, we get upset. All of these workers were in the vineyard by the goodwill and pleasure of the landowner, and whether they worked from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. or 5 p.m. to 6 p.m., the master blessed them all with the same wages. Why? Because he's generous. And he replied in verse 13, Friend, am I, do- I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you I cho- and go. I choose to give to the last worker as I give to you. See, while the workers grumble against what they perceive to be unfairness and unjustness in the master, the owner of the field is actually acting very generously. The Lord does no wrong in being so kind to undeserving sinners. And the field owner, through the foreman, reveals this when he says, I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. And then asks this penetrating question, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? And the answer to that question is a resounding, yes, he is. The Lord rules and reigns and can do what he wishes with what he owns. And what is it that he owns? Everything. The very breath that you are breathing right now, the breath in your lungs, the life that you have, your most precious possession doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the Lord who is life, who breathed it into you as a gift. I want you to imagine for a business, for a minute, that you started a business. You built that business from the ground up. You put in the long hours to make it successful. You hired the workforce. You poured your blood, sweat, and tears into it. And one day a group of workers storms into your door trying to overthrow you, telling you you've done it all wrong, and hands you a list of demands, changes, grumblings, complaints, and murmurings, ordering you to change everything. What would you do? What would you do? You'd say, get lost. I'd probably fire everyone. And this is, in essence, what we do to the Lord every time we grumble and murmur about the state of our lives. 
Every time we envy the life of another, every time we think that God, someone else has it better to us, and we say, God, you're just not fair. It's like someone busting into the Lord's office and saying, I want you to redo everything. I want you to do it the way I want you to do it. You can't be so generous and gracious to all of them. I need more for me. But the Lord is far more gracious and in verse 15 said, Do you begrudge my generosity? Literally, is your eye envious because I am generous? Think about it. This man that he's talking to is not objecting to any injustice. What you're objecting to, my friend, and what you're complaining about, my friend, is my generosity. Is that really something you're committed to murmuring against? That I'm generous to somebody else? That I would shower blessings upon somebody else while giving you exactly what I've promised to give you? Does the generosity of the Lord to another person make you resentful? If it does, what does that say about you? The Lord doesn't treat us all in the same way. But we should never begrudge the generosity of the Lord to others. Instead, we should be committed to praising the Lord for His gracious gifts, how He works in others to advance the gospel, and know that the last will be first and the first will be last. But in all of that, whether you are first or whether you are last, the promised blessing of a hundredfold, the promised blessing of the inheritance of eternal life will be yours because the Lord is generous. So in closing, if you think yourself a 6 a.m. worker, then endure the burden of the day and the scorching heat with gratitude, thanksgiving, and praise to the Lord for the denarius that he puts in your hand. If you consider yourself an 11th hour worker, one who's entered the vineyard at 5 p.m., then you labor for the best, to the best of your ability with gratitude, thanksgiving, and praise to the Lord for his grace, compassion, and generosity towards you as he puts a denarius in your hand. All who labor in the Lord's vineyard be people of gratitude and thanksgiving and leave behind any begrudging the Lord's generosity in another person's life. Instead, let us be, as Paul calls us to be, those who weep with those who weep and who rejoice with those who rejoice. And let us be content in whatever situation we are in, as the Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippian church. I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Father, we praise you, we honor you, and we thank you for warning us. We thank you and we praise you that you have given us this word to help us catch when we are begrudging your generosity. I pray that you would help us to be ever-increasingly people of thanksgiving and gratitude to you who celebrate the grace and generosity that you bestow upon others to the same degree that we celebrate the generosity that you give to us. I pray that we would not be people of envy, that we would not be people of evil eyes towards another, that we would not grumble and we would not murmur. We see what happened to the Israelites in the wilderness when they did that. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to be those who rejoice with the 11th hour workers. And if we are an 11th hour worker, pray that we would rejoice at your generosity. We pray this all in Christ's name.
Amen.